Church, welcome to week four of our series, Ghost Stories. We can't wait to hear what Pastor John has in store for us today. We are so excited. Our annual trunk or treat is next Sunday, October 29th. It's going to be right here at Bullard from 10 to noon. We are still in need of some more trunks for the event. So if you're interested, we'd love for you to sign up on our app or our website. You guys will just need to decorate your trunks. We'll provide the candy. Check out these pictures from last year for some inspiration. And speaking of candy, you can still donate. You can head to our app or website and use the Amazon wishlist link. Thanks for helping us provide a safe place for kids in our community to wear their costumes, get some candy, and feel the love this Halloween. Our next baptism service is coming up on November 5th. So if you are interested in getting baptized or just have questions about what baptism is, we'd love to get you the info. You can reach out to any of our staff or send us an email at prodigalchurchfresno at gmail.com. Also happening on November 5th, we are having a volunteer training right here after service. Because you trust us with your kids, their safety is our top priority. So if you help serve in kids ministry from birth all the way to 18, please plan to stick around from 11 to noon that Sunday following the service. Just a reminder, we do have an awesome youth ministry here at Prodigal. They meet every Sunday during service. So if you are a student or a parent of a student, age sixth grade all the way through 12th, and you haven't joined them yet, you're missing out. If you have any questions, contact Pastor Addison. We're so thankful for your continued support and generosity. If you would like to give to Prodigal Church, you can do so on our app, our website. You can also give on your way out of service in the foyer with our giving envelopes or our giving kiosks. Thanks again for your support. We're so glad you joined us for week four of Ghost Stories. Have a great Sunday, church. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead.
That's Luke chapter 16, the word of God for the people of God. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, declares, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. Charles Spurgeon said, They will be in the fire exactly that which we have on earth. Thy body will lie asbestos-like, forever unconsumed, and all thy veins are roads for the feet of pain to travel on. Every nerve, a string on which the devil shall forever play his diabolical tune of hell's unutterable lament. When questioned about the doctrine of hell, one seminary professor proclaimed, Once we see the glory of Christ in the hideous nature of sin as God sees it, hell will be understandable. If my own mother were being carried to the mouth of hell, I would stand and applaud. How many of you have been threatened with eternal damnation by Christians? How many of you have got born again, and then the next time the preacher spoke about hell, you got born again again? The passage that we just read has been used to describe the consequences and torments in the life to come if you are not a Christian. The vivid language in this parable has motivated the masses to do whatever it takes to get heaven and to get out of hell. Some Christians are convinced that the main point of this parable is to describe the afterlife. Other Christians are convinced that the parable has very little to say about the afterlife, but rather is about how we live on this earth, this life. And as we walk through this story together in Luke 16, I believe and I trust the Holy Spirit will reveal to you what you need to hear from this parable today. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple in fine linen and lived in luxury every day. This is a story of contrast. He was dressed in purple, fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. When the Bible says purple, we are to immediately think opulent, exclusive, luxurious. The color purple was difficult to obtain in the ancient world, and it derived from a certain kind of sea snail, and it secreted this certain substance that was used to make the color purple. It was a very long process and a very costly process. The fine linen. Jesus here is being funny. Okay? Linens were chonies, okay? his underwear. And so not only did he wear the color purple, the, the color of royalty, but also he had the finest underwear that money could buy. Finally, it says, he lived in luxury every day. In Greek, it's that he fared sumptuously every day. Sumptuous. That's a word we don't use all that often anymore. He was feasting every day. And the Greek tense here is literally every, every, every day. It was a continuous thing. The opening lines of this parable describe ultimate opulence. It is a double flex of wealth, 
He's peacocking. Verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. In contrast to the rich man, Lazarus is a beggar. He has no money, zero dollars. He's not covered in Armani, he's covered in sores. And he does not feast at all. Rather, he longs to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And actually, this wasn't crumbs from the feast. The text reads, he longed to eat the napkins from the rich man's table. Why napkins? Well, it is because when the rich man would feast, they did not use cloth napkins, but rather they laid some bread on their lap. And when they needed to wipe their face or their hands, they would use the bread to soak in the oil or the crumbs that were left on their hands. And then they would discard the bread for the beasts of the field to consume. And when Jesus says, even the dogs came and licked his sores, this is not a sentimental picture of compassionate dogs. Dogs were not the household pets that we now know and love. The modern day equivalent would be how we often view some rodents, raccoons, rats, possums. To reimagine this scene today, it would be a poor beggar in a subway with rats licking his open sores. The portrait paints quite a stark contrast between the two characters. The rich man has a mansion. Lazarus doesn't even have a bed. The rich man stuffs his face with food every, every, every day, and Lazarus wants to eat the napkins that fall from his table. The rich man is covered in purple, opulent, expensive clothes. Lazarus is covered in sores. This is a story of contrast, and the contrast continues in verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. It says the beggar died, but it says the rich man was buried. There was no funeral for the beggar. His body was likely thrown out of the city with no fanfare. His body was probably consumed by the very dogs who licked his wounds while he was still alive. In contrast, the rich man was buried. Someone with that much influence, that much money, that much power, that much luxury, well, that must have been a sight to see. Uh, one block away from Princeton University, there is a cemetery. And at that cemetery, there is a life-size statue of a man with his back to the university, and his last name was Tulane. Paul Tulane. His epitaph tells you how incredibly generous Paul Tulane was. And he had this life-size statue made, and while he was living, he made it, and he made clear his burial instructions. He wanted his back to be to Princeton University. You see, during his life, he offered money to Princeton, a large amount of money. Only Princeton had to do one thing. They had to change their name of the school to Tulane. And when Princeton told him no, guess where he went? Yeah, he went to New Orleans. And to this very day, we have Tulane University. 
But in his final act of defiance, he thought people would be impressed by his life-size monument with his back to the university that shunned him. I think that this is the kind of sentiment, that this is the kind of burial we would find for the rich man in Luke 16. For Lazarus, there was no burial at all. Verse 23, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Notice that the Bible says Hades here. It doesn't say hell. This is important. In fact, our English Bibles often struggle with the language of the afterlife because we want two nice and neat categories for when people die. We want heaven and we want hell. One is the good place, one is a bad place. One is for good people, one is for bad people. But that's just not quite the picture the Bible paints. In fact, there are three New Testament words that are often translated as hell for us. But in the original Greek, they refer to something else. They are Gehenna. Uh, it is the most common word that is translated as hell in our Bibles. Uh, there's Hades. This word is the word that we find here in Luke 16. Then there's Tartarus. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 2 uses this word. Uh, some of your Bibles may translate Hades as hell, even here in Luke 16. And that is an interpretive choice. It's not in the original language. So Lazarus here is in Hades. He looks up and he sees into another place. We're not told what this other place is called. He sees the beggar, Lazarus, in the bosom of Abraham. That's the text. The bosom of Abraham. And this is a unique phrase only used here in the entire scriptures. In the bosom of Abraham is Lazarus laying his head on the chest of Abraham. It was a place of intimacy, friendship, closeness. The person sitting next to the dinner host would be set to be in his bosom, in his chest. It is a closeness. Verse 24. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in an agony in this fire. The rich man cries out from Hades, send Lazarus, send Lazarus. It is the only repeated phrase in the entire parable. He does it twice. What does this tell us? The rich man who lived for himself all of his days is now in torment and he's still bossing the poor man around. He doesn't even address Lazarus. If you notice, he speaks only to Abraham. In essence, he says, Abraham, you and I both know how this thing works. You're a leader, I'm a leader. Get that guy Lazarus and, and send him to me. You see, even in death, the rich man is still convinced that he is over the beggar, that he is better than the beggar. He's still bossing him around. The one thing the rich man says is a command. It's not, I'm sorry. It's not, how can I get to you? It's not, I was wrong. It's, bring me something to drink. The rich man wants Lazarus to serve him. In their previous life, the rich man saw himself as better than Lazarus, and now in death, in Hades, 
the rich man still sees himself as better than Lazarus. It's no wonder that Abraham says there's a chasm that can't be crossed. The chasm is the rich man's heart. It hasn't changed. Even in death and torment and agony, he's still clinging to the old hierarchy. He still thinks he's better. The rich man that Jesus tells us about hasn't yet figured out that real life isn't about acquiring for self. It's about blessing others. He's still clinging to his ego. He's still clinging to his status. He's still clinging to his pride. He won't let go of the world that he's constructed, which puts him at the top and Lazarus at the bottom, the world in which Lazarus is serving him. He's dead, but he hasn't died yet. He's in Hades, but he still hasn't died the kind of death that actually brings life. And notice the rich man doesn't even ask to get out of Hades. He's so blinded by his own arrogance that he would rather have Lazarus be lifted down to him than for him to be lifted up to paradise. Verse 25. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Isn't that interesting? It's not, can you, the one down there in torment, not only can you not cross from down there and come up to here, but also those who want to go from here to down there, you can't do that either. Why is this mentioned? Because of course people would want to leave Hades and head to the better place, but Who's resting on Abraham's chest and wants to leave there and go to Hades? Uh, probably Lazarus. Lazarus is like, I'll help him. I'll give him a drop of water to quench his thirst. And Abraham is like, that's not how it works. Verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers let him warn them so that they will not also come to the place of torment. Send Lazarus. Send Lazarus. Twice he asked for this. Now, numbers are significant in the Bible. How many brothers does this rich man have? Five. And then you add him to the mix. How many do we have? Six, okay? There are six brothers. That's the number for evil. And if during his lifetime, the rich man would have accepted a poor homeless beggar into his household, how many brothers would there be? Seven. The number of perfection and completion. Verse 29. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses 
and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Our story closes alluding to the future resurrection of the very one who is telling the story, Jesus of Nazareth. Some Christians believe that the events described in this parable in Luke 16 really happened. And one of the main reasons for this is that Jesus gives a name to the main character. This is an unbelievably rare practice for the parables of Jesus. And so the thinking goes, there was this story about Lazarus, not just a poor beggar, it must be historical. Maybe, maybe because Jesus uses a real name, this is a real story that actually happened to someone named Lazarus. Or Jesus had another reason for using the name Lazarus. See, the name itself means the one God helps. Jesus names Lazarus the one God helps. And what is the name of the rich man? He doesn't have a name. The one God helps is the beggar's name. That's his identity. What is the rich man's identity? Being rich. The poor man has a name and the rich man doesn't. Again, it's a story of contrast. The one on the lowest rung of society has a name. The rich man may have status in the world, but he is unnamed. One theologian says that the reason that Jesus doesn't name the rich man was so that we could insert our own name into the story. There are other passages of scriptures that speak to what happens in the life to come. But this parable is not primarily a warning against burning flames in everlasting torment. It is a warning against the love of money. It is a warning against the kind of faith that refuses to help the beggars at our doors. It is a warning against greed. Billy Graham once said, tell me what you think about money and I'll tell you what you think about God. I truly believe that the desire for money has become an idol for so many of us. We trust in it instead of trusting in God. And greed is something we all struggle with, every one of us. Now, as soon as somebody says that you struggle with something, you immediately think of ways in which you don't. Or as soon as somebody says that you are not a certain way, you think of ways in which you were. Married people, how many times has this happened? At some point in every marriage, and multiple points in my own marriage, our spouse will say, you just don't do enough to help around the house. And then, what is the first thing that comes to our mind when they tell us that we don't help around the house? Uh, remember that time in 2018 when I unloaded the dishwasher? Yeah, yeah. Do you not remember in November of 2018 when you came home and I had already unloaded the dishwasher? I don't help around the house. I help around the house. We immediately think of the ways in which we're the exception. Like you could walk up to the meanest person in the world and go up to them and say, do you realize that everybody thinks you're mean? And they will immediately think of the one thing they did four years ago that defines themselves as not being mean. This is it, us with greed. Greed comes naturally to us. You know what greed feels like? 
feels normal. Greed is the most normal of sins. In 23 years of full-time ministry, no one has ever confessed, I struggle with greed. But we all do. It is the most normal of sins in our culture, and therefore it might be the greatest of sins in our culture. For those of you who are older, okay, go back to when you were 19, 20 years old. When you were 19 or 20, uh, you thought to yourself, oh my gosh, I can't imagine if I would be ever making $3,000 a month. $36,000 a year. If I made that much money, I would be debt-free and I would be worry-free. And right now, you're making that much money and you worry you have debt and you are still discontent. It's not because you have a money problem. It's because you have a contentment problem, a self-control problem, and a spiritual problem. We convince ourselves that we have a money problem, but 95% of us, we worry about money. We don't have a money problem. We have three different problems. We have a contentment problem, a self-control problem, and a spiritual problem. And Jesus may not answer your prayers for more money because he wants to address all three. So, if you were a first century Jewish rabbi trying to communicate the futility of always wanting more, the emptiness of living for yourself, and that real life is not found in acquiring more, but in giving it away, how would you communicate that truth? How would you communicate that complex, that multi-layered, that profound truth? Well, you would tell a nuanced story, a shocking story about a rich man and a poor man and how the rich man has the best underwear and the poor man longs to eat the napkins from his table. And then you would throw in some gruesome details about dogs licking the poor man's sores. And then you would tell about a massive reversal in their deaths in which the rich man is in Hades and has the ability to converse with Abraham, the father of the faith. And then you would end it all with a twist about resurrection, a twist that actually hints about something that you're going to be doing in real history not long after the parable is told. It's brilliant. Just brilliant. Sometimes... We need something or someone to shock us out of our selfish lull. Imagine for a second that you have a checking account and there's millions of dollars in it, but you can't spend it. It's yours, but it's not yours. It's yours to manage. You have it, but you don't possess it. You, you can never do anything with it for you, but you can spend it and give it all away. You don't have to do it right away. You have one year to give away every penny in your bank account. Wouldn't that be awesome? Some, some kids down the street are trying to raise $400 for their travel baseball team. And you're like, 500, boom. Uh, your uh, friend across the street struggles with some finances, their car issue. 
And so you go, here, fix it. It would be so fun. It would be so life-giving. People would be like, whoa, are you rich? And you're like, no, I'm not, I'm not rich. I, I just I can't spend the money on me. And I'm just, I'm so grateful. I got to spend it on everybody else. If that actually happened, you wouldn't be possessive. You wouldn't be regretful. I'm telling you, you would experience the joy of living a generous life. Here's my question. Why not just do that going forward? Generosity is the only cure for greed. I wish there was another way. I wish God could just zap my heart and I'm generous. But the, the cure, the remedy, the prescription to fix the greed, our longing and desire for money and to hold on to the money that we do have, the only cure is to give it away. When we are in scarcity, we often ask God, why? God, why, God? I don't have enough. What is your purpose in this? We ask why when we don't have enough. But why do we not ask why when we do? We ask for his purpose in the midst of scarcity. We don't ask for his purpose in the midst of abundance. Let's be generous. Let's open up our eyes and our wallets to help the Lazaruses all around us. God, I pray that we would be generous, that we would live differently with hearts open, eyes open, wallets open to make a difference on this earth. Lord, we need you. We thank you that you are good and that you are the one who helps. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week is the finale of our ghost story series. It's also our trunk or treat. And so if you are in the Central Valley at all, come on down. We're going to have food trucks, inflatables, costume competition, candy, lots and lots of candy. We can't wait. We pray for God's peace and blessings on you and your family and for peace in the Middle East.